Hello, and welcome to The Ry Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to music, the movies, and the career of slide guitar master Ry Cooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Ry Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. All this may be a bit unusual, it opens up a whole new range of possibilities for a podcast, including the chance to do it in English, which is much better suited for a topic like this one. This is our very first episode and the beginning of a long journey through more than 60 years of music history. The Rye Cooter story is going to cover Cooter's remarkable career in extensive detail. We're going to talk about all of his albums, we'll discuss his numerous collaborations, and of course, we'll take a close look at the music scores he produced for the movies. The podcast is aimed at all you hardcore fans out there, but hopefully it will also be exciting for those of you only vaguely familiar with Cooter. There's lots to discover. So here we go. If you're listening to this, you're probably already a Cooter fan. But if you've never heard the name Rye Cooter before, this will still be familiar to you. It's, of course, the score to the 1984 movie classic Paris, Texas, probably Cooter's most well-known work and his number one song on Spotify. It's a brilliant variation on Dark Was the Night, a Blind Willie Johnson blues number Cooter had also interpreted on his very first solo album. It's a perfect example for the fluid transitions Cooter makes between his work as a solo musician and a film composer. Cooter recorded 16 solo albums between 1970 and 2018. The song you're listening to, The Very Thing That Makes You Rich Makes Me Poor, is from his successful 1979 album Bop Till You Drop. It's one of Cooter's signature songs and showcases his masterful slide guitar work. At the same time, it's another example of Cooter's ability to dig up old, often long-forgotten musical treasures and breathe new life into them. Chances are, you're not completely unfamiliar with this song either. Chan Chan by the Buena Vista Social Club, by far Cooter's most commercially successful production. It was a worldwide hit in the late 90s and a perfect example of another Cooter method. He taps into the most diverse musical regions and traditions, immersing himself in foreign cultures and respectfully adopting their stylistic idiosyncrasies and playing styles, often in collaboration with local greats. In this respect, the Rai Cooter story is a journey through time and space, it takes us to Hawaii, India, Africa, Japan, back to the deep Old South, and of course the Old West, just to name a few. So who, or what, is Ry Cooter? There is no shortage of names or labels he's been attributed with. He's been called a singer-songwriter, a slide guitar hero, an American genius, a roots guitar god, a bluesman, a musician's musician, 
a musicologist, a historian, an archivist, a collector of indigenous music, and finally, a rock and roll outlaw. Probably there's some truth to all of it. Or to put it differently, you probably need all those labels to do cooter justice. If you ask the man himself, he will give a much more simple answer though. He just calls himself a guitar player from Santa Monica. Our guitar player from Santa Monica comes from an ancestral line from the Low Countries in Europe. One of his forefathers arrived in America in the late 18th century. His name was Cooter, spelled K-U-D-E-R. One of his descendants married into a family in Ohio named Ryland. Ryland Peter Cooter was born on March 15, 1947, in Santa Monica, California. His father, Bill, was an accountant. His mother, Emma Casaroli, was of Italian-American descent. Bill had fought in the Second World War and had then, with a GI loan, bought a small house on a hill above the Santa Monica airport. Cooter's parents were politically liberal and, as he would later say, stone broke. They and their friends were drawn to folk music. When they gathered in their living room with friends, they often strummed guitars, sang folk songs, or played records by Woody Guthrie. Well, I'm gonna tell you fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. You're bound to lose, you fascists bound to lose. Cooter was an only child. When he was three, he had a terrible accident. While fixing a toy car with a knife, the knife slipped and entered his left eye. The next year, he spent sitting in dark rooms, going to hospitals and seeing doctors. Eventually, he was fitted with a glass eye. One night in the year after the accident, Rye was four. He was lying in bed in the dark on his back. He remembered. My folks had a friend. They were into music, not in the business, but interested in classical music. And this man was a classical viola player, blacklisted because of the communist witch hunt. A fabulous player but he couldn't get work. He seemed to sense that I needed something to do, so he brought me a guitar when I was four. I remember lying in bed. It was dark in the room, and he brought this thing in. And he set it down on my chest, backside down. What's that? I ask. It's a guitar. And he goes, strum. And then there's of course the vibration from the thing. One of the reasons that makes it an interesting instrument. It goes right down in the body. So that was my thing. I was given a kind of a magic carpet. What do parents do after such a tragedy? They try to help the child, of course. The first thing Bill and Emma Cooter did was to give him a radio. It was comforting for the little boy to hear the man on the air tell the time or even listen to the commercials. The next thing Bill Cooter did was to teach his son to play the guitar. He told Rolling Stone magazine, I had him on my lap, and I was plucking my four-string tenor guitar and singing folk songs to him. And he said, Daddy, show me how to do that. So I put the guitar in his hands, placed his fingers on the strings for a simple C chord, and said, Now strike the strings with your other hand. And oh my! The light went on, his eyes widened, and from that moment on, he was sold. By the time he was five, I quit playing. He was that good. 
It was the beginning of Ry Cooder's early musical education. His fascination with folk and country music began when he was five or six years old, and not even in first grade. Together with his parents, he listened to the records of Josh White, Pete Seeger, and Woody Guthrie. One of his early favorites was the Anthology of American Folk Music, a monumental three-album compilation released in 1952 by Folkways Records. Frankie called Albert, Albert says I don't hear. If you don't come to the woman you love, gonna haul you out of here. Use my man, and you done me wrong. It presented a collection of 84 recordings of American folk, blues, and country music from the 1920s and 30s, including Frankie by Mississippi John Hurt. The records would be a great inspiration to Cooter, as he learned a great deal about traditional American music. He said in an interview that he used to listen to old records all the time, but of course he used to listen to the radio too. There were several stations that played country and hillbilly songs throughout the day. Music that still sounded raw and original back then. Hey Porter, hey Porter, please get my bags for me. I need nobody to tell me now that we're in Tennessee. For instance, Hey Porter by Johnny Cash, released in the spring of 1955 when Cooter was eight years old. In a 1992 radio interview, he remembered, The first thing I ever heard that I really related to on the radio as a child was Johnny Cash. There was a funny kind of area of music, hardly made anymore, by marginal light people, that I really loved as a kid, which was this kind of country blues thing. It was also played by black people, of course. But before I ever heard blues players, I heard Woody Guthrie and Johnny Cash. I had no idea that there was another world of culture or lifestyle out there. I lived in Santa Monica. I would have loved to have gone to these places, but the best thing I could do was to turn on the radio at the time. The violinist who gave him his first guitar was also a neighbor. He had records of blues musicians like Lead Belly, the original 78s, Young Rye went over and listened to them on his record player. He later said, that was the moment the door, as they say, opened. Me my wife, gone all over town. Everywhere we go, the people would turn us down, Lord, and the bridge goes down. The young Cooter probably heard this song as well. The Bourgeois Blues by Lead Belly. We will hear more about it when we get to Cooter's 1976 album, Chicken Skin Music. It features prominently as track number one. Lead Belly, also known as Hoodie Leadbetter, was a virtuoso 12-string guitarist and blues singer. With a nervous, intense furor of songs like the classic Gallus Pole, he inspired not only the young Rye Cooter, but later bands like Led Zeppelin, The Animals, or even Nirvana. Now that he had walked through that open door, our young boy began to explore the world of the blues. A local mailman who distributed blues records as a sideline introduced him to obscure artists like Skip James. Blind Blake. I met a gal, I couldn't get her off my mind. I met a gal, I couldn't get her off my mind. 
Sleepy John Estes. And of course, Robert Johnson. Not particularly fond of normal childhood activities like Little League Baseball, Cooter mostly kept himself during his formative years. Sometimes he would ride his bike to the ocean or visit the airport, which seemed quiet and peaceful to him, the little planes looking like toys. Sometimes he went to the beach or down to Venice, where the oil wells were. But mostly he divided his time between the radio and his records. Sometimes he even skipped school to have more time to listen to music. With the six-string, full-size Martin guitar his parents gave him when he was eight or nine, he played folk songs from the family's record collection. They were easy to play compared to the blues tunes he was absorbing with growing passion. Hour after hour, he studied the songs and tried to accompany them on his guitar. He listened to as much of the old acoustic blues as he could find. When he was about 12, he discovered the haunting slide guitar work of Blind Willie Johnson, another major influence. Dark Was the Night, later of course the main source for the Paris, Texas soundtrack. The music must have gotten under the boy's skin. It flowed through his veins from then on. Another major influence was Big Joe Williams. In a hilarious YouTube video, you'll find the link in the show notes. Cooter tells the story of a Williams record he purchased when he was 13. In those days, he used to take the bus to a special record store in downtown Los Angeles where he bought most of his records. New Orleans jazz, blues, hillbilly music, just as long as they had that certain Fultways look, with black and white photographs and text on the cover. His parents turned up their noses when Cooter played Big Joe Williams at home. For them, this wasn't even music. A key moment for the young Cooter. Suddenly he realized that his parents weren't always right, because he knew that this music was really good. His father, who was more into classical music, used to say, quote, These players you like are just poor field hands. They don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. But Rye Cooter never thought of these people as poor. Quite the opposite. He kept studying his records, learning tunes, memorizing lyrics, and trying to play along on the guitar. He also discovered a place where he could meet like-minded people and take guitar lessons. McCabe's guitar shop on Pico Boulevard in Santa Monica. One of his teachers was folk musician Fred Gerlach, a regular at the shop who also built guitars. He had a driving style on the 12 string in the tradition of lead belly. He taught Cooter, who had no classical training, that the first thing to do was to work on his hands and fingers. Cooter did this and quickly found that it became much easier to play along with the records. At McCabe's, Cooter also met Fred Gerlach's nephew Nick who would later go by the name of Jesse Lee Kincaid and play an important role in the formation of the Rising Suns. But more about that in our next episode.
In the early 60s, Cooter must have been 13 or 14. He started going to a folk, blues, and bluegrass club called the Ash Grove. There he had the opportunity to see some of his blues heroes on stage. Folk singer Ross Altman later wrote about the Ash Grove. That's right, in 1958. The same year, Walter O'Malley brought the Dodgers ball club kicking and screaming out of Brooklyn to Los Angeles. Ed Pearl opened a folk club at 8162 Melrose Avenue in West Hollywood. Named for an old Welsh folk song, The Ash Grove. For $2 a night, you could walk in confident of hearing the very best in both traditional and contemporary folk music. And I mean the very best in the country. To a young budding folky like me, it was the West Coast University of Folk Music. In a 2014 interview, Ry Cooter described the mood of the day. Ed Pearl somehow had this barebones folk club with everything painted flat black, rickety club chairs, and a terrible sound system. He got the idea to bring these traditional players out, who had just been rediscovered. John Fahey and Dick Waterman had found some of them, in the South and in the East, and he started bringing them clear to Los Angeles, which was a heck of a thing for some of them to do. Some of them drove in their beat-up car. Flat and Scruggs had a bus. They pulled up in front of the Ash Grove, in a bus. It was just another gig for them. There'd be about eight people in the audience, you know, college kids. But at that time you could sit there, which I did, night after night, and see all these people eight feet away from you. Mississippi John Hurt, Bucka White, the great Jesse Fuller, the Stanley Brothers. It was unbelievable. All these records came to life. And then you would say, ah, oh, I see. That thing that that guy just did that I could never figure out. Cooter not only watched the seasoned veterans from a distance, he also talked to them, asking questions and getting a lesson or two. Among the players he learned from was the legendary blind bluesman Reverend Gary Davis, Sometimes the lessons were about actual playing techniques, and Cooter would even pay the older musicians $5 to show him how to play a song. But mostly they were, as Cooter put it, about the vibe. He wasn't looking for certain systems of playing or pure mechanics. For him, it was more about character and feeling. It was an incredible kind of first-hand experience that doesn't exist in the music business today, he said in retrospect. Carol Bean, a blues guitarist who years later settled in New Zealand, was 16 when she sat in with Rye Cooter at McCabe's music store. In 2012, she recalled in an interview with a blues website, To my chagrin, Rye Cooter said to me in class, If you can't play a BB without looking, go home and stay there till you can. I said, I can't go home now. I'm giving you a lift back to your place after the lesson. Well then keep it down and four rows of people, sitting on those wooden chairs at McCabe's, all turned around and stared at me. It was like something out of a Coen Brothers movie. I almost died. All the way back up to Laurel Canyon to drop him off, neither one of us spoke a word. I still had a crush on him though. We all did. But Rye, he lived for the music. I never saw him go out with a girl once. At the Ash Grove, Cooter saw Sonny Terry and Brownie Mickey perform, heard Sleepy John Estes, 
and fell in love with the gospel music of the Staples Singers. It was fellow guitarist John Fay who first taught him the secrets of the bottleneck guitar. The LA folk and blues scene was really blossoming at that time. All the musicians hung out in the coffee houses and folk clubs, and nothing was clearly defined. On any given night, you could have run into just about anybody. Johnny Cash might walk in the door, or the new Lost City Ramblers might come to town. The next week, Sleepy John Estes might show up. The music scene was still pretty small, more intimate, and almost everyone who played and recorded knew each other. There had never been anything like it before, and there would never be anything like it again. One night, 15-year-old Rye Cooter was even asked to replace a missing banjo player on stage for country singers Bill Monroe and Doc Watson. Right away, he sensed his big chance to get out of high school and go on tour with Monroe. But after the show, Monroe turned to him and said, Son, you just ain't ready. Which, according to Cooter, was true. So he finished high school in 1964. It goes without saying that Cooter never was an A student. I couldn't concentrate because I kept thinking about songs, he said. I got in trouble with teachers and all that crap. At this time, ladies and gentlemen, and for her final set, the Ashgro takes a great deal of pleasure in bringing you Jackie DeShannon. About a year after the short-lived interlude with Bill Monroe and Doc Watson, Cooter finally had his first official gig at the Ash Grove. Along with bassist and session musician David Cohen, he accompanied Jackie DeShannon at a show on September 3, 1963. Deshannon, no longer a household name today, was a rising star at the time. Born in 1941 in Hazel, Kentucky, she hosted her own local radio show at the age of 11. In 1956, at the age of 15, she released her first single. A series of singles followed, almost all of them flops, but in early 1963, she had a minor hit in the U.S. with Needles and Pins, in later years, she would become famous as the singer of hits like Put a Little Love in Your Heart and What the World Needs Now is Love, as well as writing hits for others like When You Walk in the Room and Betty Davis Eyes. But in 1963, she wanted to change direction from pop to blues. She chose the Ash Grove for a series of concerts consisting entirely of acoustic folk songs. The recording only exists because the Ash Grove taped just about every concert in their club for years, going back to the early 60s. The two sets are available on the Wolfgangs.com website and app. You'll find the link in the show notes. Ninety-nine and a half won't do. 
not to be confused with the Wilson Pickett song of the same title, is a gospel song from the late 40s written by Dorothy Love Coates and originally performed by Sister Rosetta Tharp. It's an interesting choice because Cooter would modernize it much later, in 2007, to be exact, for Mavis Staples on her album will never turn back. Rost Altman was present at the concert. He later wrote, When I first heard him backing up Jackie DeShannon at the Ash Grove, Rye Cooter was only 16 years old and already the best folk guitarist in Los Angeles. Rye would play the guitar rags and blues of Blind Blake and Blind Lemon Jefferson and then back up current pop sensation Jackie DeShannon without missing a beat. This was before he had dared to sing a note on stage. He let his guitar do the talking for him. He was the finger-picking wonderkent of L.A., and with Ed Pearl's encouragement, he became one of America's best-known and most highly esteemed musicians. With a lifelong reverence for the traditional music, he learned to value and to perform at the Ash Grove. I'd like to introduce two gentlemen. Then, since this is closing night, I'll say something nice about you. They're, they're really the greatest people, and, and, and they're just marvelous, marvelous musicians. At least all the boys in the shop think so. <laughs> I'm sorry. David Cohen and Ry Cooter. For a short time in 1963, Jackie DeShan toyed with the idea of making an album of Bob Dylan covers. It was a great idea, since 1963 turned out to be Dylan's breakthrough year. But it never materialized. One trace of the project can be found on the Ash Grove recordings. A cover of Dylan's Don't Think Twice, It's Alright. It ain't no use, sit and wonder why, honey, be. Some sources say that later that year Cooter played guitar on one or two songs Jackie DeShan recorded for a 20th Century Fox movie called Surf Party. If true, this would have been Cooter's first session work. Other sources say he was also part of DeShannon's touring band when she opened for the Beatles in the summer of 1964. We have to put a big question mark behind that though, because by the time the tour began in August, Cooter was already performing with a new partner at the Ash Grove. Of the experience of backing up DeShan, he would later say, It was good. It showed me something about what you do with a song to make it appealing to somebody who knows nothing about it. In other words, how do you present anything? That's really the heart of all this. The presentation that you make is vital. Because if you make the wrong presentation, everybody misses the point. In some cases, she made the wrong presentation. She just didn't know what the audience would be receptive to, so she may be miscalculated. Other times it was good, it was right on the money. But the lesson of all that for me was, if you gonna do what you wanna do, and if you enforce that on people, then you got to figure out how to get there with it. I've been thinking about that ever since. Sometime the year before Cooter's gig with Jackie DeShannon, a young woman named Pamela Anna Pollan got a job as a cashier at the Ash Grove. She attended countless shows there, an aspiring blues artist herself. It wasn't long before she met young Rye Cooter, and they soon formed a close musical bond based on their shared love of the blues. 
they began performing together with Pamela on vocals and Rye on guitar. Woke up this morning, chickens growing for day. Fell down the right side of my pillow, my man had gone away. Young Woman's Blues, a Bessie Smith number from the 1920s. It is also an early feminist protest song, interpreted by the young Pamela Pollan with Rye Cooter. About their collaboration, she later explained, I call Ray Cooter my first singing teacher because Ray really taught me how to listen. He taught me how to listen to every nuance of these blues breaks whose music we were emulating. For Cooter, it was a very different kind of collaboration than the one he had with Jackie DeShannon much closer to his own sensibilities and much more at eye level. If you study the set lists of the July and August 1964 Ash Grove concerts, you will find a number of songs that would later become a natural part of Cooter's repertoire. In fact, it's amazing how close some of the songs are to his later solo work. All my life I've been a traveling man All my life I've been a traveling man Staying alone and doing the best I can Yes, it's the Police Dog Blues by Arthur Blake in a version very close to the one on Cooter's self-titled 1970 debut album. And Cooter sings, which is quite remarkable, considering that a year later he refused to do vocals for The Rising Suns. As far as we can tell from the surviving Ash Grove recordings, Cooter performed a surprisingly large portion of the concerts with instrumentals or his own vocals. Several times he also gave long introductions to the songs, like this one about one of his favorite guitarists. I'll play a Joseph Spence thing now. Now it may be, it may be, that some of you out there haven't ever you know, heard much of Joseph Spence and don't know who he is. Well, I'll tell you. Joseph Spence is a uh, bricklayer in, in the Bahamas. He's a bricklayer down there, and he's also a guitar player. He plays guitar for his own enjoyment. He has a funny sound. He, he combines a sort of Mozart minuet-type sound with, well, a sort of a country sound, you might say. So I'll just play this particular song, and uh, I'm sorry I have to say that I don't know the name of it. song title, which Cooter didn't know at the time, is Face to Face That I Shall Know Him, one of the many Joseph Spence songs that Cooter would later revisit. It appeared on his 1978 album Jazz. The L.A. folk scene would not have to wait long for the return of the next song. Well, I woke up this morning Ten Train, written by Linda Albertano and Tom Campbell and first performed by Carolyn Hester earlier that same year. 
In May of 1966, Cooter would record the song together with Taj Mahal and the Rising Suns. Pollen, on the other hand, would claim it for her duo Gentle Soul, which she formed with singer-songwriter Rick Stanley in 1966. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, we might mention here that two years later Rye Cooter would be featured as a guest guitarist on her only album, Gentle Soul. At the same time, their record company, Columbia, had big plans for Cooter and Pollen. As Pollen recalled in an interview, In 1968, the Gentle Souls producer, Terry Melcher, wanted to take me and Rye Cooter to New Orleans to record a live album at Preservation Hall using the great blues and jazz musicians in that area who were still alive. This idea was nothing short of thrilling to Rye. I liked the idea, but I had reservations. I was concerned that if I recorded with Rye and it became successful, Columbia would no longer take me seriously as a singer-songwriter, and I really wanted to keep recording my own songs. So I called up Clive Davis, who was the president of Columbia Records at that time, and I asked his advice. I said, if I do this blues album with Rye, will Columbia still support me as a singer-songwriter? Clive said that if I really wanted to pursue my career as a singer-songwriter, I should not go to New Orleans and not record this blues project with Rye. So I bowed out of the project, and Terry killed it altogether, which was terribly disappointing for Rye. In fact, Rye hasn't spoken with me since, which is very sad for me, because we were very good friends, and I loved singing with him. In retrospect, Pollen's decision not to make the blues album was probably a grave mistake. Not only did she ruin her relationship with Cooter, for whom the whole thing would have been a real affair of the heart. She also missed a golden opportunity to create a monument to the blues greats, and it didn't help her career as a singer-songwriter. She was soon forgotten. In the end, the album Gentle Soul, including the song Reelin, which has a great slide guitar ending, was her last collaboration with Rye Cooter. And that brings us to the end of our very first episode of The Rye Cooter Story. I hope you enjoyed listening. In our next episode, we will learn all about the rising suns. I hope you'll join us then. Meanwhile, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Rye Cooter Story, or visit our website. All links are in the show notes. If you want to support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing and want to recognize our work, please go to Patreon and become a member. Membership comes with all sorts of benefits, but more on that in our next episode. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. Bye.